Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk slash donate. So we're ready for the second talk on the Holy Eucharist. So as be, before we begin, of course, we start with, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire thy love. Send forth thy spirit that they should be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant by the same Holy Spirit, we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we mentioned yesterday, the, the Eucharist is a vast topic. It is essentially about God incarnate, Christ who dwells amongst us. God who wishes to live with us. And when we read John, St. John's Gospel, we hear, the, I will come to him. Who believes in me, I will come to him. The, my Father will come to him. We will dwell with him. This desire for God to dwell with us is something we can't even begin to grasp. We, would, we want to be with God, yet when we look at God's creation, they seem to be so much more attractive. But this, the sign is that the, if so much of what we see is beautiful, how much more beautiful must be he who created it? And so we, we should, whilst we admire and whilst we love the creation, the visible world that we see, we have to remember that there is a creator, an author, and a, someone who has originated it. And he must be much more beautiful and satisfying to us. So in the Eucharist, we encounter Christ. And what I'd like to do um, this evening is to explore the Eucharist, most of it from scripture, but what it ought to mean to us. And it's always good to begin with a definition. So what, how can we define the Eucharist? The church herself tells us from the Council of Trent, the Eucharist is that sacrament in which Christ, under the form of bread and wine, is truly present with his body and blood in order to offer himself in an unbloody manner to the Heavenly Father and to give himself to the faithful as nourishment for their souls. Now, one sentence and each single word is a library by itself. So we'll break down each one individually. The Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving, simply, it's only one of the meanings, thanksgiving, is a sacrament. What is a sacrament? If you remember your catechism, a sacrament is an outward sign of an inward grace established by Jesus Christ, etc. What, what does that mean in simple terms? If we wanted one word, I suppose it would be a promise. A sacrament is a promise given by Christ that if we do something, he will give us the grace that corresponds to the thing that we did. Let's take an example. Our Lord talked about baptism and said that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he promises that if we are baptized, which consists of the pouring of water, or being immersed in water, and some words are spoken, 
namely, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Lord says, if this is done, he will give you grace to enter into life. Go out into the whole world, baptize, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm with you to the end of the age. That's what it is, a promise. Every sacrament is a promise that God will give us the grace corresponding to the sacrament. So when we forgive, when we confess our sins, the words, I absolve you, the sins are forgiven. And the grace which we lost because of sin is restored to us. In the same way, um, when uh, a, a person is anointed, with the anointing, with oil, the person is, their sins are forgiven, and if God wills it, they are restored to health. This is what we read in the first letter, in the letter of St. James, in the fifth chapter, and so on. So every sacrament is a promise. So the Eucharist is a promise in which Christ, that's clear enough, under the form of bread and wine, so it looks like bread and wine, is truly present. He really is there with his body and blood. Now he had a body and the body had blood. He had a body which he took from the womb of the Virgin and he had blood which was poured out on the cross. So he is there under the appearance of bread and wine. Why? To do two things. In order to offer himself in an unbloodied manner to the Heavenly Father. That's the first thing. So, in the Eucharist, our Lord is appearing in heaven in an unbloodied manner, appealing to his Father for our salvation. On Calvary, he did it once, in a bloody manner where his blood literally was um, drained from his body. He anticipated this the night before, when he offered himself in an unbloodied manner, and then afterwards, after his resurrection, his church, his mystical body, all of us would offer that same sacrifice. We would be joined with Christ. And we read that in the letters of the Hebrews. Christ has gone through the inner veil, not carrying the blood of goats and, and, um, and sheep, but his own blood. And that's the first thing he does. And the second thing is he gives himself to the faithful, to us, as nourishment for our souls. This is my body which is given up for you. So it's nourishment for our souls. And if it's nourishment, it means it must be food. So that's essentially a definition. Does it sound extraordinary? Well, it is extraordinary. It's something only the divine mind could have conceived. And because it's so extraordinary, it's difficult to believe without faith. That's why so many people who lack faith do not really believe that Christ is truly and really present. Or oh, it's just bread we are receiving. Or why don't we get wine at Mass? You never get wine at Mass. You get the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God at Mass. It's not wine. It's wrong to refer, it to, to, refer to it as wine. It is the precious blood. And because it's so extraordinary, God gave us types. He showed us from ver in various parts of the Old Testament that this is what he intended to do. So what are these types? Well, first of all, at the very beginning of creation, we read of a type of the Eucharist. And this type is found where? in the Garden of Eden. In the center of the garden, there were two trees. One, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other one was the tree of life. When our first parents ate from the forbidden, of the forbidden fruit, 
God said they had to leave. Otherwise, they would stretch out their hands and eat from the tree of life. Essentially, the Eucharist. And if they did this, they would live. But it would be a terrible life because it would be what we're going through now, except it would go on and on and on and on. would become more and more decrepit, to put it bluntly. So God, in his mercy, removed us from the garden. But nonetheless, God did intend that we should have this, tree, this, this fruit from the tree of life. Another type in which we find the Eucharist is the sacrifices of Abraham and Melchizedek. You recall that Melchizedek, Abraham coming from the, um, the, the Battle of the Kings, he encountered Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, we read in the letter to the Hebrews, was a type of Christ, having neither father nor mother nor any offspring. And Christ, of course, had no mother in eternity, no father in time. And he has made all of us brothers and sisters. He has no descendants according to the flesh. So Melchizedek offered a sacrifice of bread and wine. Abraham would offer his own son, which would, of course, be a type of Christ. Isaac was a type of Christ, bound on the wood, carrying the wood of the cross, and being offered to, to the Father. We have the manna in the desert, perhaps which is the best example. The manna fell every day, everybody collected, and we are told that nobody collected too much or too little. Whatever they collected was sufficient. And so it is with the Eucharist. When we partake of the Eucharist, we will get the grace sufficient for the days, for, the, for our daily needs. Give us today our daily bread. This is what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. And that daily bread is essentially the Eucharist, which is sufficient for today. Then there was the showbread, which was kept in the temple. There was an altar, a, a table, a golden table, and on the table were 12 loaves, which was changed every week. This remained in the temple in the presence of God, again, a type of the Eucharist. And then there are, the, of course, the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the calf, the sheep, the goat, and so on. But above all, the Paschal Lamb. And the Paschal Lamb is perhaps the, the best example of, of, the, of the Eucharist. It was Christ, it, this Paschal Lamb represented Christ himself. So much so that the last of the prophets of the Old Testament would say, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist. This is how he identified and defined the Christ as the Lamb. So the, the Lamb, the Paschal Lamb, is the best example of the Eucharist. And this is really sublime. The Eucharist is the greatest, the most sublime of all of the sacraments. Why? Because, as I said at the beginning, each sacrament is an instrument by which Christ gives us grace. So in baptism, we receive the grace of being born as, as children of God. In confirmation, we are strengthened, we are brought to maturity. In the Eucharist, we are nourished. In, in um, the sacrament of reconciliation, of penance, our sins are forgiven. And what does that mean? It means essentially that we are wounded, we are injured by sin, and so we are brought back to health. In the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, where we are weakened because of sin, we, are we receive strength. In the holy orders, we receive governance because we are social beings. And in matrimony, we receive the grace to raise up citizens for heaven. So all of these sacraments, we receive a grace to do something. But in the Eucharist, we do not just receive grace. We receive the very author of grace. He who is the source of all graces, Christ himself. 
we receive him truly. In addition to this, all of the sacraments, or I should say all six of the sacraments, have the Eucharist as their final object, their goal. In baptism, we've been prepared to receive the Eucharist. We cannot benefit from the graces of the Eucharist if we are not baptized. We're confirmed so that we might receive the Eucharist as fully mature. Our sins are forgiven in reconciliation so that we might be worthy to receive the Eucharist. Of course, the priesthood is so that we might have the Eucharist. And matrimony? Well, in matrimony, aren't the spouses images of Christ and his church? The one body? And this is exactly what happens when we receive Christ. We become one body with him. In addition to this, the rights of, this, of the celebrations, the rites of all of the sacraments have, as, have the Eucharist as their fulfillment, as their way of consummation. So whenever we receive any of the sacraments, the, logic, the logical end is to receive the Eucharist. So we can say that the Eucharist is the pinnacle, the summit, as well as being the source of grace for the other sacraments. So that basically gives us an idea of, of the definition. We have also the concept, well, what is, um, what, what is the Eucharist in essence? And the Council of Trent actually tells us in one of its canons. It's in the canon number one, on which deals with the Eucharist. The Council says, if anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he is only therein as a sign or a figure or by power, virtue, let him be anathema. In other words, that is not the Catholic faith. To deny that Christ is not, um, to deny that Christ is not substantially, truly and really present, that his body, blood, soul and divinity are not there, is in session, in, in essence, to reject the Catholic faith. And this is being defined. In other words, to be a Catholic, we must believe this. We must believe it. The terms truly, really, and substantially all exclude any symbolic interpretation. It means literally he's there. Now if we think about that, we, we, we ought to tremble. We're saying that our God is truly with us. And then we ask, well, if we believe this, why do we treat him so shabbily? Do we genuflect? And in genuflecting, it's not just a ritual, but do we, when we bend the knee, do we actually say, my Lord and my God? When we receive him at Mass, do we thank him for coming to us? Or we just take, eat, drink, and go and sit down and think of what time is Mass going to be over? What do we do? If we really believe that he is there, we would make sure that we greet him. When we receive him, we ask for the graces we need. We thank him for coming and being with us. We ask him to leave with us. 
and to stay with us. Because don't forget, faith is an acknowledgement of a reality we cannot see. Give this an example. When Thomas was told that Christ rose, he said, unless I can put my finger in the holes in his hands and my hand in his side, I refuse to believe. The Lord appeared. Thomas, he said, put your finger here. Give me your hand, put it in my side. And Thomas said, Lord, <clears throat> my Lord and my God. What did he believe? He saw Christ. If we, what we see, we don't believe what we see. We believe what we do not see. He saw Christ, my Lord. But beneath that humanity, he knew he could see spiritually the divinity. And so he proclaimed his belief in Christ. Because our Lord said, doubt no longer, but believe. Believe that I am God. And so we should approach the Eucharist as well. We see the bread, what appears to be bread. We see the chalice of wine, what appears to be wine. But truly, hidden underneath is our Lord and Savior. That's what, no, that's who we're receiving in the Eucharist. Not a what, but a who. Someone who wants to stay with us. Stay with us, Lord. The evening approaches. Remain with us. Our Lord promised us the Eucharist. And he did this in the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. He promised to make a gift to us, to those who believe. And he did it in three or four different stages. First of all, he prepared for it. And the story, uh, and I'd suggest you read the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. The story is this. The crowds followed him, were told 5,000 men, not counted women and children. So the crowd will probably be about 50, 60, 80,000 people, easily. They had no food. They'd been with him for several days, no food. Andrew brings a boy, he says, the only, all we have among us is the five loaves and two fish. The Lord said, tell the people to sit down. And they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. That was how they were able to count. So it wasn't just an imaginary number. Because the people were in groups, they were able to count them. And then he took the bread, he blessed, he gave thanks, he blessed. He gave it to the apostles, who in turn distributed it. We're told they had more than enough to eat because there were 12 baskets left over. The Lord said, pick up the scraps. That should tell us something about the Eucharist. We have to be very careful. Not a single particle is lost because of our carelessness. The ordinary means of receiving the Eucharist is on the tongue. The church permits, it's a permission for, some, for whoever wishes to receive it in the hand. If you receive on the tongue, there's very little chance of particles being lost. If, however, you receive it in the hand, there are particles. And if you're not careful, these will be thrown down. And of course, we have a case of a serious sin, sacrilege. So we have to be very careful, out of respect for who it is we are receiving. The, so the Lord said, pick up the scraps, they did the 12 baskets. The crowd, when they saw this, said, aha, we can have a free meal every day. They wanted to make him king. 
But the Lord said to the apostles, cross over, and he went up into the hills. In the middle of the night, we're told it was a third watch, three, four o'clock in the morning. No, two or three o'clock in the morning. The apostles are at sea, on the Sea of Galilee. There's a storm. And they're battling, so they're wide awake. They're battling the headwind. And suddenly, they see someone walking on the water. So, of course, they're scared. They cry out. The Lord says, do not be afraid. It is I. They arrive on the other side. In the meantime, the crowds had figured out what had happened. And they, when the ships came in, they crossed over the next day. They found our Lord. And they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he said, you didn't come looking for me because of the teaching. You came because you had enough to eat. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Work rather for the food that gives eternal life. And so they ask him about this food. And he says, after a little dialogue, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you will not have life in you. And they don't understand. They're trying to figure this out. And then he they question him, and the, the dialogue gets even more um, literal. And they say, this is intolerable language. He wants us to eat his flesh. This is nonsense. He's madman. And they walked away. And the Lord watched them walk away. He made no attempt to stop them. He simply turned to his apostles and said, do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? We believe. That's it. We believe. So that's the background. Now when we, as I said, I strongly recommend that you read that chapter, six chapters in John's Gospel. So the Lord prepared for the um, Eucharist by working two miracles followed by an exhortation. The first miracle was the multiplication of the loaves. It was reminiscent of the manna in the wilderness where God fed the, the, the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness with a manna that fell from heaven. Our Lord referred to that manna. It's the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, the living bread from heaven. And the second thing he did was the walking on the water so that the apostles themselves were aware that here was someone who was more than human. And then when the crowds come, he said, to them, as I mentioned, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for that which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So it's future tense. As I said, the, the argument began, the, the discourse began, and the Lord made some general declar um, some declarations about the Eucharist. First of all, in a general speech, he talked about the true heavenly bread that comes down from heaven and gives eternal life to the world. And that's between verses 29 to 34. He says, it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, the living bread from heaven. And then he said, well, give us this bread always. So he says, I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. And then he says, um, it, anyone who eats this bread will live forever. So the crowd saying, hmm, well, that's not, what quite, that's not quite what we had in mind. So then they, they, they discuss it a bit more. And he begins to identify himself with this bread and ends up declaring that the true heavenly bread, this bread, is his flesh, Anyone who eats my flesh has eternal life. And they said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then in six distinct verses, the Lord says, puts it in positive and in the negative. And more than that, he adds drinking his blood, which for the Jew is unthinkable. The Jew had a horror of blood. To even touch blood was defilement. But Having said, perhaps I should 
I should read it to make it a little um, clearer. I hope. So the, the, the Jews said to him, verse 34, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And then he goes on, the Jews murmured. Um, for it, uh, yeah, the Jews murmured because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say he's come down from heaven? And then the, they, they come back to, I'm the living bread, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which has come down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's verse 51. Now, at this point, he says, all we need to do is eat his flesh. That's why we used to, we still do, we get the faithful receive the Eucharist under the form of bread alone. It's not necessary to receive the chalice as well, because Christ is whole and entire. Whether you receive him under the appearance of bread or under the appearance of wine, you still receive the whole Christ. Nothing is lacking. He's there. So the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Verse 52. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, he's taken an oath, and he, listen to what he does. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So that's in the negative. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's in the positive. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's a promise. Second, third, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Not symbolic, real. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in him. Two things going on. He wants to come and stay with us more than we want to stay with him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so who eats me will live because of me. Again, this is the bread come down from heaven. Not like that which the fathers ate, they are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So he makes, he identifies himself, and then he declares that his, it's necessary for us to eat his flesh and drink his blood if we are to have, in the present time, eternal life. And then, at the end, eternal life full-blown. Incredible promise. So you have a choice. Either he's mad or he's telling the truth. The, the Jews, of course, unfortunately, they walked away. They thought he was mad. They could not accept what he said, because it's something that can only be accepted on, on faith. I should mention that in the Greek, there are two words for life. The first is the one we're more familiar with. We have the word biology, bios. It refers essentially to the life in the flesh, the, 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 the bodily life, temporal life. There's another word in the Greek for life, and that's zoe, which refers to spiritual life. And the Lord is referring to this spiritual life. But it does not exclude the biological life. 
because we believe also in the resurrection of the body. So the Eucharist is meant to nourish our spiritual life while we are pilgrims through this world. The, of course, the Jews, as I said, could not accept it. They, they found that what he was saying was too difficult. And even among Christians, some, um, some are separate, all of our separated brethren, with the exception of the Orthodox, found that this is, cannot be literal. So we Catholics and the Orthodox accept that our Lord is speaking literally, not a metaphor, not a symbol, literally. And it's literal for a number of reasons. First, because of the words that he uses. True food, real food, real drink. And then, the verbs that he uses about eating his flesh. The verbs he uses are trojain, which means to gnaw, to chew, to grind under the teeth. Almost to eat, he's saying almost, eat like an animal. That's what he was saying. Now, you wouldn't use that kind of language, those kinds of verbs, if you only meant it metaphorically or symbolically. But this is what our Lord is saying. Unless you chew me, gnaw at my flesh, you will not have life. Another reason is that to interpret what he says figuratively leads to difficulties. Because in the scriptures, to eat somebody's flesh means to persecute them, even to the point of killing them. And we have examples in Psalm 26 and Isaiah um, chapter 9 in the prophet Micah and so on. So our Lord could not possibly mean this figuratively. Certainly the Jews did persecute him even to death and they literally ate his flesh. So do we, but we do it in faith. They destroyed him, or tried to. But we, who eat his flesh, we obtain life as a consequence. Thirdly, those who heard him, they reacted badly. They said, this is intolerable language, we can't accept this. And they walked away. If our Lord meant it metaphorically as a symbol, as a type, as a figure, he would have corrected their misunderstanding, wouldn't he? He did so on other occasions. For, for instance, when Nicodemus, when speaking to Nicodemus, our Lord said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus said, how can a grown man be born again? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? He, he misunderstood. What did our Lord do? He corrected him. He says, no, he must be born of water and the spirit. And there are other examples like this where our Lord corrects misunderstandings. For instance, when they were crossing the, the sea, um, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples thought he was talking about bread. Is, it, is, is he saying this because we didn't bring bread? And also, why are you speaking about bread? He corrected what they had misunderstood. Um, and then lastly, we have um, the, instead of watching them go away, he, he um, confirms the literal meaning of what he had said when he spoke to the apostles. Will you, will you also go away? He said, and then he reaffirmed it again. And then the fathers, all the early church, all the fathers of the church believed it. So it was understood literally for the first thousand years of the church's life. There was a period um, in the 10th, 11th centuries when one or two people doubted and they were corrected. So for the, we can say effectively right up to the present, the church believes this. 
So the Lord promised, I will give. The, the, the food I will give is my flesh, future tense. When did he fulfill the promise? And the answer, of course, is when he instituted the Eucharist on the night he was betrayed. And we have two versions, essentially, of the institution of the Eucharist. One is called the Petrine, and the other one is called the Pauline, after Peter and Paul. So the, in the case of the consecration of the bread, we have the two versions. The Petrine is given to us by St. Saint Saint Matthew and St. Mark. And in both of these cases, we read, this is my body. And in the Pauline, which is St. Luke and St. Paul himself, in the, in the first letter to the Corinthians, we have um, the words of, of consecration, this is my blood, which will be poured out, I'm sorry, this is my body, which will be given for you. So the, the Petrine is, this is my body, and in the Pauline, this is my body, which will be given for you. In the consecration of the chalice, the Petrine, Mark and Matthew, this is my blood of the New Testament, which will be poured out for many. And in the Pauline, this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So essentially the same, except that the Pauline version is more expanded. And so from these, whichever we use, there is a literal interpretation that is necessary. It can only be really, it only really makes sense if we understand it literally. Why? Because one, the wording used, true bread and wine, first of all, they call to be, they said to be true. Bread and wine are not symbols for the flesh and blood by nature or by speech. When we talk about bread, we're not talking about flesh. When we talk about wine, we're not talking about blood. But according to their natures, they're two different things. There's no connection. And even in our ordinary speech, there's no connection. The second thing, the circumstances in which our Lord spoke. It was the night of his betrayal. It was a solemn night. It was the night of the Passover. He had spoken about his passion. During the week, the, the whole of the, that holy week, the disciples were with him, the apostles were with him, and they saw, they felt the tension between the authorities and our Lord. Our Lord spoke many parables referring to his death. He reminded the apostles of his death. They knew that night something terrible was going to happen. The Lord had said so. He had washed their feet. He had said, one of you will betray me. He said that they would be scattered. He had said that Peter would deny him. And so when he's speaking now, when he's instituting the Eucharist, he is not going to be frivolous. It's a serious atmosphere. And he's speaking to them effectively for the last time before he dies. And so he speaks in a manner that the apostles would understand clearly. In other words, literally. There's no more metaphor, no more parable, no more figures. This is how it is. And then, the, the practical inferences or the consequences which St. Paul draws out of it. And again, we read it in the letter, to the first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 11, St. Paul um, says and that an unworthy reception of the Eucharist is to sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Whoever receives unworthily in a state of mortal sin receives judgment to himself because he's re-crucified the Lord. That's what he's saying. That's why it's such a terrible thing to receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin. So St. Paul puts that in the negative. And then 
He puts it in the positive in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, where he says, a worthy reception is to participate in the body of the Lord. The, the, cup that, the, the bread that we eat is not a participation in the body of the Lord. And similarly for the chalice. So, St. Paul then gives us both positive and negative. And so from this we can deduce that Christ is literally present in the Eucharist. Body, blood, soul and divinity. How does this take place? The church gives, has a technical term which, by which she explains this. It's called transubstantiation. And the Council of Trent defines it for us in the, I think it's the fourth chapter, the Council tells us, the fourth chapter dealing with the Eucharist. And because that Christ, our Redeemer, declared that which he offered under the species of bread is truly his own body, therefore has it ever been a firm belief in the Church of God and this Holy Synod now teaches it anew that by the consecration of the bread and of the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood, which conversion is by the Holy Catholic Church suitably and properly called transubstantiation. So the, the, the church tells us that the words of consecration, the whole substance of the bread is changed into the substance of our Lord's body. So it's introduced the word substance and the word conversion and attached it to this very special word, transubstantiation. So what is a conversion? A conversion is a transition of one thing into another. Everything, we live in the material world, everything is made up of a substance, matter, and what an appearances, the technical word is accidents, but it means appearances. So, for instance, we, we have, this is wood. We know it's wood. But in these days, it could be plastic, couldn't it? Looking like wood. So when we ask, what is it? We could either say it's wood or it's plastic. But when we look at it, it may be difficult for us to determine whether it's wood or plastic. It's only by touching it or by examining it more closely we can actually tell me what it is. I'm sure you've, you've been to sort of flea markets where you, you are assured this is a leather belt. It looks like leather, smells like leather, feels like leather, until you take it home and you you leave it hanging around, and it's not leather at all. It, the appearances could fool you, but the reality, what is it, is what matters. And the church says that the appearance of the bread will remain, but the what is it, the underlying substance changes. So if we take an example, we have marble. This a block of marble. But when you carve it, it's still marble, but the appearance has changed. It's now a statue or you know, something, whatever you want it to, to make it out to be. The appearance can change, the substance remains the same. We can have the substance changing as well as the appearance changing. As for instance, wood, you burn it, okay, it changes, the appearance change the substance changes, it now becomes coal or ash or something else. Vinegar, a wine. If you leave it exposed for a long time, it becomes vinegar. Yet the appearance could still appear to be wine until you taste it. 
But in the case of Eucharist, we're saying the whole substance changes. The appearance stays the same. So it will look like bread, it will taste like bread, it will feel like bread, and so on. Except the Lord sometimes, and I'll deal with this tomorrow, the Lord sometimes allows the appearance to change. And this is what we call the Eucharistic miracles. So then, this is the, essentially, the, the concept. And there are several scriptural proofs for this. First of all, from that there is this conversion, that transubstantiation is a, a reality. The proofs from the scripture are the words of institution themselves. Christ is the truth. Christ, being God, cannot deceive nor be deceived. So if he tells us, this is my body, ought we not to believe him? Especially when he makes no attempt to, to say otherwise. He makes no effort to show it can be anything other than literal what he's saying. That's the first. The change of nourishment we look at from our experience, when we eat anything, it takes, the, it, it changes into the substance of our body. So when we have a good sandwich, it's no longer a sandwich, it's part of us. And if we have too many, it's a lot of us. Okay, in other words, what we eat, we becomes part of us. Okay, but we could go even further. This is natural, what I've just said. When Moses threw down his staff, what did it become? A serpent. Here was a wooden staff, dead wood. He throws it down, it became a serpent. That's really a change of substance because the substance has changed and the appearances change because we told everybody ran away when, when they saw that. They knew it was a serpent. Or don't you believe Moses did that? Um, we have the Moses then using his rod and he struck the Nile and the waters became blood. This is what the scriptures tell us. And if we find that difficult to believe, then what would you say when our Lord, when our lady said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And the Lord said, fill the jars with water. And the servants did that. Take it to the steward. What did the steward say? People generally serve the best wine first. But you have kept the best till now. Did the water change into wine or did it not? If Christ could change water into wine, is there any reason why he can't change wine into his blood? It's the same divine power acting. And then, of course, we have the greatest of the miracles, the creation and the incarnation. The creation, when he brought us into existence, and then we sinned, and his love for us was so great, he became incarnate. He put on the substance of our nature, our flesh, our blood, a human soul, and joined it to his divine person, and he dwelt among us. That is truly the magnitude of God's love for us. And he wants to remain with us and has given us the greatest of all privileges to be with us, tabernacled among us, so that we can come and salute him, greet him, kneel before him, ask him for our needs, the forgiveness of our sins, and eternal life. God made us to know him, to love him, to serve him in this world, so that we could be forever happy with him in the next. May we indeed be happy with him now and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit.
Yes, we have some questions, and um, we'll end with benediction. Any questions? Okay, um, we, as a boy, after I made my first communion, my grandmother would take us um, to, usually to a friend very close by, and the first thing we used to have is a glass of water. That, I mean, that, that was common. As soon as, immediately after mass, people would have a glass of water. But your question, um, when we received the, the, the sacred species, the body of our Lord, or his Oh, it's precious blood. Um, we, the, the saliva will dissolve the, the particles. Um, and so once the appearances, that is, the, if you can de detect any uh, particles themselves, and it's very unlikely in the saliva because it dissolves it, once, once, the, once it, there are no more particles, the appearances have gone. The, the, the Christ is no longer in the particle. Okay, because it would have dissolved. However, have you swallowed it? He remains in you. You know, and so it's. Um, I mean, it's a good practice. Um, just to, to drink some water immediately you know, when, when you leave the church. Um, again, it's good because it reminds you of whom you've received. And we should really try to keep our Lord constantly um, in, our, in our minds and, and you know, give, give thanks to him you know, for, for, being, for being with us. Even before that, with the sacrifices, they were always washed in, in, the, in the Jewish temple. That's why there was a big um, basin of water for the washing of the animals. There was a sheep pool where, where the man who was, who was um, crippled for 38 years sat. So the, the sheep, the, the victims of sacrifice would be washed. Um, the, our Lord, when the, at the Last Supper, they would have mingled a little water with, with the wine. Certainly out of his side came the blood and water, as you mentioned. But um, it's also symbolic. The wine is symbolic of our Lord, infinite God, and the water, us, a little water, so that we, symbolically, we join with him. We're offering that sacrifice to the Father. Okay, um, there, there are many other um, symbols which we attach to the Mass. Perhaps might do those to, tomorrow. Um, but but yeah, yes, it's, it's essentially, the water represents us in essence. It also represents our baptism, of course. That what um, baptism is always. Uh, what is associated with baptism? Yes. Okay. Can I receive wine 
Okay, first of all, okay, first of all, you never get wine in the Catholic Church. Okay, it's a precious blood because once, once the word, because you see the the, the words we use, will if we don't use them correctly, we could lead to misunderstanding. Okay, um. Once the, the, the chalice is consecrated, it's the precious blood. Our Lord is present. And as, 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 as I said at the beginning, or in, in the talk, when our Lord first brought up the, the question of the Eucharist, he said, if you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you will not have life in you. That is what he said. He only referred to this flesh. When the Jews started to dispute that was when he brought in the blood as well. It's in the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. Now, the church, in the, in the early church, both used to be administered. Okay? The, 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 the body as well as the blood. Okay, we know that. As the church grows, a deeper understanding arises and for various reasons, the, in the Western Church, to which we belong, the, the laity, in fact, in the up, I think up until perhaps a thousand, so they used to receive both. In the Eastern Church, the, 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 the body is placed in the chalice. So it's, it's mixed. And then it's given to the faithful but with a spoon. Okay. Right. In the West, because the Protestants, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and so on, denied that Christ was present in the Eucharist, the Church reserved the chalice from the faithful to teach us that Christ is whole and entire under the appearance of bread as well as under the appearance of wine. So it's not necessary for us to receive both. If we receive him only under the appearance of bread, we receive the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. If we receive him only in the chalice, we receive the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Because Christ is living, therefore there must be blood in his body. If his body and blood are there, and he's living, his soul must be there as well. Christ is, the, his body, blood, and soul are united to the person. So his divinity is there as well. So the answer to your question, it does not make any difference, okay, in terms of receiving Christ, whether you receive him under either one or both. Um, but if you read the six chapters I said, you'll you see how our Lord refers, his, first of all, only to his body. Um, if I understand you correctly, if we are going to receive the Eucharist, we must be in a state of grace. If we, if we are in a state of mortal sin and we receive the Eucharist, we are in fact violating Christ. We are crucifying him again. St. Paul tells us this in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, I believe. 
Um, okay, it's 11, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, and in fact, uh, if I go back, the, he talks about the institution of the Eucharist. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Tradition. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, the chalice, after supper, saying, This chalice is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. That's verse 27. Verse 28. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. So if we receive unworthily, we're in fact bringing judgment to ourselves. Because as the, in, in, the, in the scriptures, to eat a person's flesh means to persecute them even to the point of death. Yeah? And then he, he goes on, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we should not be judged. In other words, if we examine our conscience, and we find that we cannot worthily receive, we wouldn't do so, and so we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And the, the, the reason that we approach the Eucharist with such reverence is in fact so that we can grow in grace. We can, we can become more worthy. The Lord will give us many more graces because of it. So the, the intention is to deepen our devotion and to deepen our love of him as well. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Mm -hmm.